I want to thank Natalie um, for reading the scripture this morning. She's a real trooper because she had also read it at the 9 o'clock service. So I just want to say thank you and uh, extend my appreciation to her publicly because I appreciate that a lot. Back on October 4th, when Brent preached a sermon on contentment, what he didn't know was that I was going to be preaching a sermon on contentment. I mean, when was the last time you heard a sermon on contentment? The only other time I heard a sermon on contentment was when Brent preached it. And so as I sat there, I thought, God, do you want me to preach about something else? But the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like, no, I want you to preach about contentment. And so actually the title of this morning's sermon is Contentment Chapter 2. And uh, the reason is because when Brent talked about contentment, he talked about it with respect towards money. That is to say that we can't find our contentment in the things that we buy. We can't find our contentment in acquiring stuff. I'm going to be talking about contentment on a more personal level. That is to say, contentment with ourselves. Contentment with the circumstances in which we find ourselves. A lot of times you've heard it said, I've said it, perhaps you've said it too. You know, if only I was different, if only my circumstances would change, then I would be content. But what I want to talk about this morning is this. That, what? Am I on? Am I using this? Oh, I thought I had. More technology fun. It is on, pal. When you see a guy in the back of the church doing this, you know something's up. Are we good? Yeah. All right. But the point I want to make this morning is that there is a joy that awaits us out there when we can find that contentment in who God has created us to be and in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, one of the things that we teach the kids at school when we teach them how to write a paragraph is that every paragraph needs to have a topic sentence. And that topic sentence needs to convey to the reader what he or she is about to read through the rest of that paragraph. And if David were attending Landmark, he would get an A because what he does is he gives us a wonderful topic sentence at the beginning of Psalm 16, which conveys to us what the rest of that psalm is going to be about. He starts out by saying, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is looking for safety and he is looking to God for it. Now the occasion of this psalm is uncertain, although most scholars seem to think that this psalm was written in the early years of King David's reign, when he was trying to establish himself as king over Israel. And so it would make sense then 
that as he is taking on this responsibility of leading this nation, that he would be looking to God for safety. And it seems as if the way he's doing it is by inventorying all the things that God has done for him in his life so as to remind himself of God's faithfulness so that indeed he will keep him safe as well. Safety, like love, is a fundamental need that we all have. What is more important to a child than to know that they are safe? And as adults, we need safety too. We need safety from heartache, from disease, financial ruin, accidents, loneliness, misfortune. We need safety from shame. We need safety even from ourselves. From danger, from scheming, from deception, from disappointment, from suffering of any kind. And if ever we needed a sense of safety or a sense of security, it's in the face of death. Bottom line, like David, we constantly want and need to feel safe. And like David, we too look to God for safety. But what is the connection between contentment and safety? How does contentment keep us safe. The connection between contentment and safety is that contentment protects our hearts from covetousness, which is always a danger to us spiritually, mentally, and physically. And David knew this full well because he saw how a heart of covetousness ate up his predecessor, King Saul. He watched the demise of King Saul. He watched him lose his effectiveness as a man and as a leader of Israel because he coveted. And it's as if David in this psalm is saying, God, please don't let me make that same mistake. Please keep King Saul. Remembering what keeps us safe by enabling joy to others. It's wanting what we don't into trouble. So first, David recognizes that God is the source of all that has been given to him. But notice too that the psalm is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 8 refer to in heaven. So whether it be in this life or the next, our contentment is found only in God. And this is the point David makes in verse 2. He said, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. God is the giver of all those things in our lives that are good. Was any part of creation ever established without God determining first that it was good and good for us? And is not God the giver of good gifts? What sorts of gifts does God provide for us? Well, part of the answer is found in verse 3. The first thing God gives us to live a contented life is our friends and our loved ones. He says, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Consider our own families and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Other than God himself, is there anyone closer to our hearts? I mean, we've all seen this. The news report, there's a family standing there arm in arm after a great fire or a flood or an earthquake or a hurricane or a tornado. And the house and the barn behind them is completely flattened. 
but they're standing there arm in arm. They say, yeah, we lost everything, but we still have ourselves. We still have our family. And that's what really counts. That's what's important. And we sit there watching TV and we nod our heads in agreement because we know that that's true. I smile every time I think of all of my Christian friends throughout my life, from the time I was a teenager until now, because they've always supported me. They've always loved me. They hear me. They know what I'm talking about because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We serve and love the same Heavenly Father and we're filled with the same Holy Spirit. So when we're talking about contentedness in our lives, what David is saying, what I'm saying this morning is, consider the saints. Think about family and friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Are they not a source of contentment? Usually. But with that contentment, wouldn't you say there's also a sense of safety and security? I mean, honestly, we look at Thanksgiving coming up. Isn't that the thing that we're going to miss? The psalmist then goes on in verse 4 to make his point even further. By contrasting the saints with those who do not know God, they hold in front of us all the time. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you woke up on Christmas morning and there was a Lexus in your driveway with a big red bow on top? Oh, not one, but two Lexuses, right? Yeah. But then consider how they foster the idea that they can fulfill the standards they create. These are false gods, not only because they promote the false notion that true happiness can be found in the lifestyles they advertise, but also in the fact that they promote themselves as the means by which we can have those needs met. They appeal to our covetous nature. They create a false need, and then they promote themselves as the means of attaining what doesn't even exist. That is, contentment through the acquisition of stuff will get you there, and there is no there. That's the definition of a false god. And David goes on to say that he will not pour out libations of blood to them. He will not pay them homage, nor should we, because there is no truth there. Now understand, I'm not saying you can't go out and buy a Lexus. By all means, go out and buy a Lexus if you want one. But... Sadly, so many people who do not know God look to meet the standards of mass marketing in order to find... It's important to note that when David says that he will not pour out libations or take up their names on his lips, that he is referring to the false gods, not to the people who worship them. And so it should be for us. We should always be praying for those who continually seek for contentment, who searches endless because they are searching in all the wrong places, our prayer should be that God opens their eyes and enables them to see that, like David, their only true contentment can come to them as they enjoy a relationship with the God who created them and who loves them. Now, I have to tell you that my favorite verses in this psalm are verses 5 and 6. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. Made my lot secure, it kind of rings of, you make me lie down in green pastures. And if you look at Psalm 23, you can see some of the similarities between that and Psalm 16. He goes on, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And here is the heart of the matter for me. David finds contentment in what God has given him. That is, 
who he has made him to be, and the circumstances in which he lives. The boundary lines mentioned here actually allude to the boundary lines of Canaan, the promised land. The Israelites could enjoy their lives in freedom and in safety as long as they lived within the boundaries of their country. And at the same time, these boundaries protected them from the enemies who were out to destroy them. They were protected as long as they stayed within those boundaries. We also have boundaries. And I'm defining these boundaries as limitations. As long as we live within the boundaries of our limitations, we too can enjoy the freedom these boundaries provide, as well as their protection. Let me tell you a story in order to explain what I mean. It's a story of me. When I was in seminary, there was a group of people I envied all the time. It was the five talent people who had managed to multiply their talents into ten. It was the people who could do five or six things all at once, and not only do them well, but do them brilliantly. It was the professors whose every class was inspirational, who also led a church and managed to write and publish books. These same men and women who could also sit down with me at lunch and make me feel like I was the only person in the room, who would have students over to their house at night for dinner, doing all this while also raising a family of four. For the longest time, I had a dream of being like that, a pastor of a church while also being a school chaplain. And if any of you are familiar with Brewster Academy up on Lake Winnipesaukee, are any of you familiar with Brewster, ever seen it? Okay. Beautiful school up on Lake Winnipesaukee and abutting it, actually right on the lawn with Brewster, is this little UCC church. I don't know if it's still there or not, but when I was in seminary, my dream was to pastor that little UCC church and have a teaching job and a ministry with the kids over at Brewster, having the kids over to dinner and that kind of thing. But alas, I was not a 10 talent guy. I was a two talent guy. And the reality I kept running into was that I could really only focus on one thing if I wanted to do it well. I simply didn't have the capacity to do the things that I dreamt of. I did try, and every time I tried, one of two things, or actually these two things happened all the time. The first thing is, everything I did suffered, because I didn't have the focus or the capacity to do all the things that I wanted to do. And two, I'd always get run down to the point where I would get sick. This happened over and over and over again until I finally realized the fact that I just wasn't going to be able to do all the things that I dreamt of doing. Protection came for me in this realization of my limitations. Energy and joy became consistent in my life once I got past the disappointment that I wasn't like the people I admired so much. They simply had it and I didn't. And I had to trust that somehow God was still happy with my more measured results. So how did my contentment with God protect me? By embracing my limitations, that is, the man God made me to be. It protected me from frustration, disillusionment, and perhaps even from shame. Knowing my limitations has actually made me that much more valuable, I think. So what other kinds of boundaries are there in our lives that give us both the freedom to live and still protect us from what might destroy us? 
The law is a boundary. Limitations set on us for our own protection. There are laws which ensure our freedoms, like freedom of speech and religion. There are also laws that limit us. Speed limits would be an obvious example. God establishes laws for the same reason. Consider that God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that he had told them this for their own protection. Consider then the covetousness of Adam and Eve of God's power and knowledge and the literal hell that that unleashed. Somehow they lost sight of God's provision of paradise. Paradise. They're living in paradise. No longer content to live within God's law, they subjected themselves to the mirage that somehow there was more, but there wasn't, and there never is. Marriage is a boundary and a limitation. Living within the limitations of marriage provide a happy and a healthy home. The boundary of marriage protects the marriage relationship and protects the home where children can grow in safety and stability. Venture outside the limitations of marriage, and we open ourselves up to the enemy who would destroy us. And we can't even imagine that defeat. Remember David and Bathsheba. Consider the many wives and concubines David had, and yet he still had to violate the law of marriage because he coveted Bathsheba. It was his covetousness that took him from God's protection and subjected him to the consequences of his actions, specifically losing a child. One other point I want to make here before I move on is this. I would like for us to consider the nature of contentment versus the nature of covetousness. Contentment is solid. It's like the mountains. We can build on contentment. The foundation is solid and unmovable. Covetousness, on the other hand, is fickle and fleeting. It has no foundation. We couldn't possibly build on it. And like the snow and the mountains, it comes and goes with the seasons. Contentment is based in reality. Covetousness is based in fantasy. Contentment is true. Covetousness is a lie. You know, for the longest time, I really coveted Joe Grafoni's little red Miata. That little sports car. But I haven't really thought about that so much, and I've got a Honda that I really like. In fact, I have to tell you that now that I don't think about Joe's Miata that much, I really like my Honda. You get the idea. But while our contentment is found in all that God has given us, what happens when those people or those things which God has provided that brought contentment are taken away? What happens then? Where do we find contentment when we lose a loved one or when our health is taken from us and we are limited in ways in which we've never been limited before? Where do we find contentment then? Ultimately, in this life and in the next, our contentment is always found in God. Verses 7 and 8, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does David mean in verse 8 when he talks about setting God at his right hand? Well, what that's referring to is that back in the day, the idea was that the right hand was a symbol of authority and power. 
Because most people were right-handed, it was seen to be the side of strength. Christ is at the right hand of God and has overcome the forces of sin and death. The same power is extended to us, so that through Christ we too have power over sin and death. And when do we need that power of God in our lives more than when we've lost someone we love? Or when we seem to have lost everything? And when David says, I will not be shaken, what shakes us more than death? The thought of our own death or the death of those we love. And yet with God at our right hand, we will not be shaken. Can you imagine having God, the creator of the universe, at our right hand? And yet we do. It's the whole reason why Christ died on the cross. So that we would have not just access to that, but that God would make himself accessible to us. So that we would have that power. That's why it's so critical to understand that ultimately our sense of contentment must come from God and God alone because only he has the power to sustain us when we've lost everything. Therefore, David concludes in verses 9 through 11, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So David not only begins this psalm with a marvelous topic sentence, he wraps it up with a wonderful conclusion as well, ending with a litany of victories. First, we are not abandoned at the grave. Decay in verse 10 is a metaphor meaning that we will not experience isolation or loneliness or the absence of God in the presence of death. Our life together with God will never end. It will not end in death. We are not, or ever could be, abandoned at the grave. And Calvin takes this idea even further, emphasizing the bodily resurrection, when he says, yet as God defends and maintains not only our souls, but he also defends our bodies. And David doesn't speak groundlessly when he represents the blessing of dwelling in safety as extending to our flesh as well as our soul. And Isaiah says, of course, yet in my flesh shall I see God. This is the nature of the victory we enjoy because of the power of God over death. That is to enjoy the very presence of God in a resurrected and immortal body. Is there any reason then why we should not find contentment in God alone, even when we've lost everything? Victory number two, when David refers to the path of life, he is referring to a way of life that is revealed and blessed by God, a way in which only the wise could understand and achieve, a way that has been revealed to us, and we are blessed by it. And where does this path lead? It leads to the joy of being in the presence of God and the eternal pleasures secured by him for us. How? By that same powerful right hand. So what condition in life could possibly overshadow this magnificent truth? 
What dark cloud could ever obscure this glorious light? Let us see, observe, and remember what God has provided for us in this life and find our contentment, even our safety, and our joy in that. And in life's trials, particularly in death, let us remember the victory God has provided for us and may that joy, that realization, carry us through all of life's disappointments and trials with a contentment that can never be overturned. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, keep us safe, for it is in you we take refuge. Keep us safe from a covetous heart. Rather, give us joy and contentment in the people you've made us to be, and contentment in the circumstances of our lives. Be our strength so that we may live a life contented in your sovereignty in this life and in the next. Amen.